Listener Production. You have to promise yourself that you're going to get up one more time than you fall down. Because if you don't promise yourself that, just go and get a job. Save yourself the effort. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff and the real stuff, which is exactly the aim of our podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Today's guest is someone who really is making it happen in a very, very attractive sector, at least speaking perfectly, that of whiskey. Mark Coburn, founder of Coburn's Whiskey, welcome to The Good Oil. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. Mate, thank you for joining us. Now, uh, I was going to say full disclosure, but for the fun of it, we're doing this one in person, which I think is the very first Good Oil episode I've done in person. And it's because you are a Southern Highlands local like me, uh, about 90 odd minutes out of Sydney. What brings you to the Southern Highlands? Geographically where it is, close to the coast, up on the top of an escarpment, the temperature range here, all these things lead into what I do. Plus it's God's country, right? <laughs> Mate, let's get into what you do. Um, I don't imagine too many of our listeners have heard of Coburn's Whiskey, but they're going to in a big way reasonably soon. We'll get to that in a second, but let's go back a step or maybe half a dozen steps. How does Mark Coburn go about founding his own whiskey distillery? It's a big dream. It's a very big dream. I think most people listening are probably going to have that same view, quite honestly. I think it's by, that you, you may well have the most envy of any guest, I think. Uh, I'm sure most of us would uh, at least have some dream at some point of having their own whiskey distillery. I think you're right. Um, <laughs> if you tell enough people what you're going to do, mm-hmm. you drive yourself to, to achieving it. Nice. That was my technique. Was, was For about a decade, mm-hmm. I would tell everybody that I met that I'm going to build a whiskey distillery one day. That's awesome. And where did the dream come from? I walked into a distillery at the back of the Gold Coast, Tambourine Mountain. I made schnapps and uh, I kind of looked at this process and it captures two big things that, two big things in my life. It creates a a nexus. One of them is steam engines, a great love of, of building and building steam engines. And the other one is cooking, flavor, and when I looked at a still, I saw a steam engine that created the essence of barley. <laughs> yeah. And then you put that spirit into a, a barrel and you extracted the essence of oak and then you put it into a glass and you put it in front of somebody. And That's you, very cool. You're giving something to somebody that you have created. Now- I, I mean, that, that's that's awesome. But I, I ask this question of all the entrepreneurs I speak with because I reckon everybody listening at some point has thought, I should do X. You know, I'm one of those people who goes on holidays and I look at a real estate agent's offices at, everywhere I go on holidays saying, I could buy a place here, I could leave here, I could move here. And I don't really ever do that. Or I might have an idea for a business and I think, that'd be cool. And then I go back to my day job. There's one thing to go to a whiskey distillery or a schnapps distillery in, in Tambourine Mountain on the Gold Coast and say, how cool would that be? And I'm sure almost everybody who goes in there has that thought, that dream, that idea. And then goes back to their day job. You are the exception to the rule because you have the same thought, but you're actually the bloke who's then gone and actually done it. Can you kind of, I'm always fascinated by this question, mate, because for me, that's the difference between the dreamer and the doer. You know, and I'm, I'm absolutely in the dreamer category. I've got a mate who left working for the Motley Fool where I work and went and did his own thing and said, I just really want to do this thing. And I'm sitting there going, great idea. I kind of like my paycheck and I like my job and I'm, I'd like, you know, it's a great idea, but I'm not going to do it. 
What takes you from the every man, every woman who says, how cool would that be? And then jumps back on the plane and forgets it. You do that and come home and say, actually, I'm going to go and put whiskey in barrels and try and find a way to sell it and build a business. How, 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 why are you different? How are you different? What's the, what's the Mark Coburn uh, difference that the rest of us don't have? I would cut that down to a very simple statement. Okay. And that is need of change. Okay. Your, your necessity level to change is really, really low. Right. Um, basically, you're comfortable. Yes. And the risk of you changing is quite high. You've got a lot to lose. I'd been self-employed since 1992. Okay. I'd had my ups and I had my downs. Um, I'd just had a, a big down. Mm. Um, um, I lost everything during the GFC, including my wife's house. That didn't make me very popular domestically. <laughs> um, I was in a funk and um, I had this big need of change moment. And I was all in, and I knew that I needed to be all in. Um, I'm in my late 40s. I knew I only had one big push left in me, one really give it all. Because um, I knew I knew previously that when you go out and do something and you fail, there was a recovery time. And each time I'd done it, the recovery time had, had stretched out by a number of more years. First off, I bounced back in five years, and then I bounced back in seven years, and I'm kind of getting to my late 40s, and I'm going, I'll give the – so all in. And when you're all in, it's a very different realm. You, there's a lot of things that are, that are not off the table for you that you, you will go and do, and you will, you will not give up. And that, that drive, that absolute drive, um, when I saw the spark of an opportunity – when I was able to get my hands on a little bit of capital and, and, and put all my entrepreneurial juice into that capital, that's what happened. So I want to dive just a little bit deeper into that because the need of change for some might be, all right, and I'll excuse the, the vernacular, I'm trying, trying to get a real job. Time to actually go on, you know, get someone to pay me to do a thing. I know I'm going to get paid. The money's coming in. I can pay down my debts. I can pay my rent. I can do those things. Others of us, like you and others, will say, time to go and start another business, do another thing, be, build another thing, be successful this time around. Um, again, I think that's there's something deep. Maybe it's DNA, maybe it's culture, maybe it's background, whatever it is. There's something where people have said, I'll try and, and, and do this thing, whether it's a business or a project or property or whatever it is, and you say, did it? Didn't work. Okay, time to get a real job, time to join the workforce and, and kind of grow up a bit. And again, I'm, I'm using those pejoratively. Uh, others will say, you know what? I failed the first time or the second time or the third time, but four is going to be the charm. And there is a real distinction, I think, personality-wise between those two groups. Um, what is it in you that needs to go and build to create, to start your own thing, to be your own boss, your own man, uh, maybe that others don't have? There are two early influences in my life. There is a family friend, friend of my parents, um, a self-made man, started off as a... Uh, uh, a life insurance salesman, um, what are they called now? Financial planners. <laughs> yes. And he was a very motivated man and he was in our, in our realm um, often. And then there was my uncle who was a very similar man. And my, my uncle lost um, several million dollars back in the, in the early 80s when, when several million dollars was an extraordinary amount of money. And it broke him. 
and he never he never bounced back and um i got to australia in, in 89 from new zealand uh, i had a thousand dollars in my in a backpack and back then uh, a one-way airline ticket from new zealand was 880 dollars <laughs> right um and within a year i had uh, saved up a bunch of money and i, I was doing okay and I, I formed a company okay. and I called up our family friend, Eric, and said to Eric, I've got a company. He said, great. Now you're going to learn how to make some money. <laughs> and uh, he said, but you've got to do one thing. If you're going to go down this path, you have to promise yourself that you're going to get up one more time than you fall down. Right. Because if you don't promise yourself that, just go and get a job. Save yourself the effort. Because being successful isn't about launching one idea and making a million dollars. It's about launching thousands of ideas, gluing them together, resolving all the problems and the issues along the way, mm. no matter what they are, and just doing, doing that all over again every day. And while you're going through the... Um, the distress of losing everything, you are learning the most invaluable lessons of an entrepreneur. You are, you are fortifying yourself um, like a castle because inside those walls, down in those basements are full of the treasures that you have learned. And without those treasures, without those learnings, without that experience, those that anguish, that, that, that having to sell assets that you've, that you've worked so hard to achieve, you don't, you don't have what it takes to be successful yet. Mm. A one-off success is a very, a very fragile thing to be because you don't know what, what um, disaster looks like. You don't know what it smells like. You can't see it coming and you don't know how to deal with it personally. And this business is by far the hardest thing I've ever been involved in. It's a remarkable uh, business to, to launch. This has been a long time coming and still a long time to go. And we'll talk about the, the future in a bit. Being a serial entrepreneur, was it a case of looking for something and finding whiskey? Did whiskey slap you in the face and say, oh my God, this is the thing? How did you think about the business case relative to the passion? And how do you kind of combine those two components? There are some entrepreneurs who will say, I spoke to one relatively recently who said she looked around and went, which of these things matches the criteria that I need? And settled on a thing that she had some skill in. She understood the economics of it. She said, that, that's what I'm going to do because it meets the, the criteria I've set. Others say, I got a passion about this thing. Can I turn it into a business? And there's others that are kind of somewhere in between. Where, where do you sit on that continuum? Look, I think the answer to the problem is in the mirror. Right. And if you really look at what your assets are mm. and then you play to your strengths um, and when you're a solo entrepreneur, as you always are at mm -hmm. the beginning, unless you're well healed. <laughs> yes. Um you have to have a lot of passion. You've got to get out of bed. You've got to, you know, front up to a staff meeting, which is you. Um, and and <laughs> normally it involves yeah. looking at your bank account as part of the staff meeting. Mm. And um, for me it was I'd done things that I weren't 
that I wasn't passionate about previously. Mm. And that's great if you're going to build it and sell it because you, you're just on a mission to get the hell out of there as soon as you can get enough for it. Whereas for me, I had a much longer plan. I, I set out on a, on a hundred year business plan. Um, it was a concept that I had come up with and I, I can't point to where. Um, I, I, I had a fascination with hundred year old businesses. Okay. Delicatessens in New York that own their building. Yeah. Um, and when you look at these old businesses, they inevitably own the building. Yeah. They're an in, inevitably multi-generational. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have this kind of mistaken aura and their customers love them. People flock from all around the world to attend them. Um, I wanted to build one of those. I wanted to build immortality by by building a business that the next generation could either run or um, sit on the board of. So I had this this model in my head. It had to be a certain size to be um, economic, um, viable, cost of goods, all of those things. Then I wanted something that um, I have two daughters um, and the whiskey business is, is fast becoming um, less of a male domain. Uh, the average age of a drinker is, is uh, late 20s, a whiskey drinker. Is that right? Yes, the average wow. age of a whiskey drinker is 27 years old. Kids are learning. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a 33-year-old and yep. a, a daughter and a 16-year-old daughter. Okay. Um, and I just wanted to go out and do this, yeah. do something that was connected to, connected to me. Um, yeah, I'm waffling now. No, no, makes makes perfect sense, mate. Um, all of that said, if someone had said to me, "Hey, I'm going to start a whiskey business," I would have first have said, "Cool, can I can I come?" But secondly, I would have said. This is a remarkably difficult business to run. I'm a shareholder in Treasury Wine Estates, a, a wine business, but and it's not the same, but it's not dissimilar. Their biggest issue is finding, firstly, quality ingredients, but then secondly, sitting on the product for an extended period of time to then be able to retail something of value. The capital intensity of a whiskey business or a premium wine business is extraordinary. Um, there are many easier ways to try and turn a buck, maybe not in the long term, but in the short term, the, the maturation time, and again, you'll tell me what the technical language is, but that the capital required to get to the point of sale is extraordinary. And I, I probably would have said to someone, are you really sure you want to do this? Because this is you, you've chosen a high mountain to climb just to get to not only cash flow neutral, but cash coming in at all. Um, did that at any point make you think, this is a big bite. Am I sure I want to do this? You don't overanalyze. Um the darker parts of an idea. Right. You just leave them in the dark. <laughs> Willfully you, or, uh, or? Well, just, you don't, it, it's my first rodeo. Right. So there's a lot of you don't know what you don't know. Which is how entrepreneurs work. If you knew a lot for another thing, anyone would start anything. Correct. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't have started this if I knew all of the things that were going to come up along the way. And the list has been stunning. You know, we've had pandemics and wars, interest rate, you know, everything's going on. Yeah. Um, the bushfires that raged on the south coast got within seven kilometres of my place. Yeah. Two days later they went out. But for the year before that we watched them come towards us. Um, it's hard to imagine um, the list of things that's come along. 
um, Australian wine got kicked out of China. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, an alcohol product removed from the biggest market <laughs> in the world. Yeah. Who would have thought yeah. that yeah. would be possible? Yeah. Um, look, I, I, I'm not employable. Um, my last job was in 1992. Right, right. Um, I don't know why anybody would pay me a wage, <laughs> so I don't have much choice. Yeah. I'd, I've had a number of businesses over the years. I've had my successes and my failures, and and I just stuck to this idea. I had a few. I, I had a few concepts of how um, this would work. Mm. I'd been in real estate. I'd reno, renovated a lot of properties in the nineties, dozens and dozens and dozens of properties. And then one day, a light went off on my head that the only people, only reason people invest in real estate is because banks will lend money against it. Right. Well, there's two things in that sentence um an asset mm-hmm. and a lender yeah and the penny drop that a barrel of whiskey a commodity is a is a fairly um nondescript item by itself mm. it's also at a price point um say ten thousand dollars for a wine barrel size barrel 225 liter um so you've got an asset that requires time well that sounds awfully like real estate <laughs> um I don't. The bank won't lend against it. Against it, so we need other lenders. Well, at ten thousand dollars a hit, there are plenty. Of, there are plenty of lenders in the market. Um, they want an interest rate return. Uh, what goes into the barrel isn't what comes out of the barrel. Uh, it's it's a a barrel is a fantastic value add. Um, and when I started to put that idea together, I could see that the the crowdfunding platforms weren't raising any serious amounts of money for the bulk of their their people, the odd one would get you know get a million dollars, but most people, hundred thousand was a really good turnout, and I needed millions, millions, and I came up with this model of uh, selling a barrel of whiskey on Facebook, and I got laughed out of the room. I got laughed out of lots of rooms, <laughs> um, and we went out. Um, I, I wrote the first ads. I spent two years on the phone calling thousands of people and I sold millions of dollars worth of whiskey and you know that's the whiskey that I'll be releasing next year The model as you rightly point out mate is you have investors who are investing in barrels of whiskey which gives you the working capital to obviously let that time do its thing right you're effectively they're paying for you to fill the barrel mm-hmm. they want to return at some subsequent point in theory when you've been able to make a sale or ready to make a sale they just have cash come in that model is perfectly reasonable except i have to mention the fact that others who've done this haven't exactly covered themselves or your industry in glory and I'll be honest with you, mate. As, as an investment advisor myself, I look at the idea of buying a barrel. I'm like, I've seen this movie before and it hasn't exactly worked out. That's got to make your life, frankly, bloody difficult. Um, you know, the, the, there's nothing wrong with the model in and of itself, except when it's abused. The same is true of any investment any in any area for any reason. Uh, it's got to. I mean, it makes perfect sense to your point. You you get to you get paid to fill the barrel effectively, and you get people some money back in a few years' time when the barrel is hopefully close or ready for sale. It doesn't make it, it makes a lot of sense up front. With that reputation, though, how have you been able to continue to keep the cash register ringing and actually convince or or comfort more importantly the potential investors that we're not like those other guys? Gosh, <laughs> so. Six months after we started, mm. 
a distillery by the name of Nant in Tasmania uh, went into administration. Yep. And we, as an industry, was were watching this happen before mm. our eyes. We mm. couldn't stop it. Um, it really made us put some robustness around what we do. Mm. So our job was to de-risk it for our, our barrel owners. Um, and we went down every path we could to de-risk it. One of the things we're very proud of is um, when the ATO turn up to do an audit of our bond store, which they do unannounced, All right. uh, my colleagues tell me that it takes several weeks up to many months for the ATO to finish their audit. Um, our last audit, they arrived at 10 o'clock in the morning and they were finished by 4 p.m. And that's because all our barrels have an owner. Well, the vast majority mm. of our barrels have an owner. Mm. Um, that's not me, that is. And our administration system is as squeaky clean and as transparent and as we just were so over-administered um, that we save ourselves the grief of a many months long audit. Yeah. Um, the last time the ATO turned up, uh, there was the, the supervisor and the auditor as there has to be, and the supervisor turned, uh, the auditor turned around to the supervisor and said, um, "Maybe when I retire next year, I'll come and work for these guys as a consultant." <laughs> Very nice. Um, it's about the and, highest praise you get from the ATI, I assume. And look, and it it's a it's actually a nice relationship because they know every trick in the book, and what's a little bit quirky is the chairman of my advisory board, a guy by the name of Kim Gillis was the head of Australian Customs. Right. And he wouldn't be on board mm -hmm. unless we're squeaky clean. So part of your answer is yeah. surround yourself with people who have high integrity, mm. act with high integrity, be transparent, um, stick to your knitting. So we only have one business. That we're all in. We're committed. All our family assets are in this. Mm. There's only two shareholders, my wife and I equally. We don't have a mixed-up situation going that puts other people's um, assets at risk because there's a change in direction because shareholders have decided to move in a different direction. Mark Coburn's staying in the direction that he's going, and and that's it, and and that's why we. It's an interesting model that I. There are obviously other listed whiskey and, and alcohol businesses on on the ASX and around the world, and that provides access to capital, but it does change incentives it does change the way a business is viewed and the influences on that business how have you also resisted the urge i mean there is there is an element of access to capital which i know you've just talked about there's an you know potentially a higher valuation for a publicly listed company as opposed to a private one uh certainly a lot of ego stroking if you get to be the ceo and founder of an asx listed company worth x million dollars uh how have you how have you kind of planned through that yourself how have you avoided the siren song of all of those advantages because i'm sure there's more than one investment banker who's pitched you the idea of an asx listing at some point how have, you, how have you kind of resisted that siren song and said i get it but it's not for us i suppose the first thing is i didn't start this business to get rich no i i i already have more than i need right and I, and um i don't have an extravagant lifestyle to support and 
my end goal isn't to to die with millions of dollars in the bank. Right. Um, I wanted to build something for the next generation. Um, I had an idea of a hundred year business plan. Um, I wanted to be sitting on my porch in my you know in my rocking chair um, when I'm too old to do anything else, enjoying my lifetime's work. And, and when I die, the bulk of my lifetime's work will be still sitting in barrels aging. And the thought of selling that off for somebody else to um, capitalize on or, or, or affect and, and, and damage in any kind of way or let the accountants go through and, yeah. and, and turn it into a, um, something that I didn't want it to be, hmm. That's what drives me. Right. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it absolutely, sure? absolutely does. Let's talk about the 100-year-old business plan or the 100-year business plan because uh, I'm a shareholder of a business called Washington H. Sold Patents, and I've mentioned it before on the podcast. It's been around since 1896, I think. The fourth generation of the family is still running it. In my head, that's – I don't know what the – the founders in 1896 had intended for the business. It's a very, very different company now, but still run with that same ethos, the same values, and largely the family are still you know, the bulk of the shareholders. Again, I know we're talking about a private company versus an ASX listed one, but I, I think, I mean, it makes, on one level, you, you almost have to have that 100-year plan if you're going to, but maybe you don't, there's listed companies, I suppose, as I said, but you are dealing in time, you are dealing in age, you're putting down a, a barrel now that may not be sold, let alone bottled for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, there is a certain amount of, you can't not, I suppose, it's something, if you're genuinely serious about making good whiskey as opposed to just creating a business shell that you can sell to somebody else you kind of have to have that approach because there is no alternative you can't uh, warren buffett's got a great quote which is i don't know how risque it is these days but he says you can't have a baby in a month by getting nine women pregnant and the same as the idea of of whiskey you could tell one year old whiskey i suppose if you chose to but the reality is you can't speed up time you've got to trust the process you've got to put the effort in you've got to put the product down and then hope that, frankly, in 24 years, the whiskey's any good. I suppose that's one That's one issue. But then two, the, the, those, the fruits of those labors are, by definition, uh, decades hence. I started with two underlying things that I wanted to achieve as lifetime goals. Right. One is to drink my own 25-year-old. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. That's fantastic. Yep. Um, sorry. 20-year-old, right. by the time I turned 50, okay. and I was 48. So I, I got whiskey into barrel um, the 28th of July, 2017, a couple of months after my 50th. And the other one was I wanted to make the best whiskey in the world. <laughs> nice. And that is a preposterous statement <laughs> when you look at how much whiskey there is in the world. And one person can do it by definition. <laughs> That's right. And... I thought if I started with that as my goal and then I lined up everything behind it and it's, it is it is a similar idea to a 100-year business plan because you line up everything behind that overarching um, statement or purpose and then off we went. That was, I'm going to make the best whiskey in the world. And what's happened since is absolutely beguiling. 
Uh, I will I will ask you then to boast because uh, we were talking before the podcast. Uh, you said that uh, despite not having uh, planning to release commercial quantities of of Coburn's whiskey just yet, you have been in a couple of competitions. So I will I will clear the floor All right. uh, and let you do a little bit of boasting about uh, some competition successes you've had. Look, my staff staged an intervention. Um, on me at a staff meeting a couple of years ago. <laughs> I was not letting anybody outside the business taste my whiskey because oh, okay. I didn't want bad reviews floating around the whiskey world about Mark Coburn's whiskey not being up to scratch. <laughs> it would kind of torpedo the business plan. It really would. And I hadn't thought that bit through, trust me. So when they, uh, they, they did this little intervention, I remember it very well, <laughs> they said, but your whiskey's really good. And I said, yeah, but... I pay you, so I don't really care what you think, <laughs> diplomatically. Yes, yes. Um, let's enter a competition. So I chose the Royal Australian Spirit Competition run by the Adelaide Show, which runs one of the most prestigious wine competitions in the world. Mm-hmm. And my staff said, how many, how many entries do you want to put in? Two or three or five? And I said, no, look, 20 for heaven's sake. At least I'll pick up something somewhere. <laughs> Right. And, a lot uh, of large numbers. And so we sent off, and I said, you go and choose them, because I didn't even want to be part of my own demise. Right, right. And the 20 entries went off. Um, news came back that we got 11 bronzes, and 25 silvers, and two golds, and trophy for best cask strength whiskey at the show. Hey, well done. So we got 40 out of 40 all up. Oh, Wow. Yes. That's impressive. Okay. Yeah, 20 whiskeys into two categories each, and we cleaned up. They all won in both categories. Wow, well done. Well, that wasn't wasn't good enough, really. Um, There was a bit of trolling that kind of indicated that it was just a uh, provincial Australian show. Okay. And uh, we needed to put these trolls to bed, so I went off to the most prestigious and the largest competition in the world, the the San Francisco World Spirit Competition. Uh It's been around for over 20 years. They get five and a half thousand entries, and they have the best array of judges um, you could possibly imagine. And once again, we sent twenty in. I sent the, sent my um, my brand ambassador and my blender into the warehouse and choose twenty. They don't have to be the same. Off they went, and San San Francisco called me up and said, um, "You've done well, Mark. You've got two bronzes and uh, a couple of silvers, a couple of golds." And five double golds. Right. Now, I'm not familiar with double gold. Just, is, that, is that an extra level of success? That's a unanimous decision by all of the judges to score you a top points. Oh, wow. Which positions you as the best of your type. That's remarkable. Well that's, done. That's a, that's a kind of global reference point <laughs> to the quality of your whiskey. That's very impressive. So you're a position now where you've you've done all this work, you've got to this point, and yet I don't think I think I'm right in saying you can't buy Coburn's whiskey anywhere because you're right. You simply you haven't made it available, and this is what's such a fascinating time to be talking to you because, as I said, not only is the business model in terribly capital intensive, it takes a long time to get there, and I imagine you're sleeping a little bit better now after those awards. That that must make you feel a little bit better about the potential, uh, not only not only the, the reputational value, but simply obviously the quality in and of itself. We, we all like our own whiskey, I'm sure. I haven't made any, you have. But uh, having other people say this is actually good stuff must give you more confidence. But talk to us about, I guess, the journey to here, but then from here. I, I feel like we may be at 
tipping point's the wrong word, an inflection point probably in the business. You're going to start selling at some point relatively soon. What does that bit look like in your mind? Look, the awards are um, a year of us getting ready to go to market. Right. Um, I, I, underst- I understand what it takes to build a brand mm-hmm. and – this is going to be a luxury brand. Yeah. It's not going to be premium. It's mm-hmm. not going to be ultra premium. <laughs> it's going to be luxury. And luxury is a, is a particular sector, a particular price point. Mm. Um, if you own something that's very prestigious mm-hmm. and you worked hard, saved hard, and you put it on your wrist or you slipped it over your shoulders like a nice suit, mm-hmm. um, or a lady's handbag, and then you turned around and saw it everywhere, <laughs> you feel like the brand, I've asked a lot of people this question, you feel like the brand has somewhat done the dirty on you. You were sold a ultra premium mm, mm. thing, and then it was turned into a mass market object. We have to avoid the race to the bottom, which is the which is the common success arc of a brand and scarcity is first and foremost and the, the and no oh, sorry i'll take that last point back scarcity is what um, keeps your customer a premium customer the quality of the liquid in the bottle um, is what gets your customer back but it's the quality of your brand that gets the customer in the first place. So we're building a brand around very solid um, ideals and concepts, um, production techniques, and we're here in the Southern Highlands specifically because I believe this is the best place in Australia to age whiskey. Right. 770 metres above sea level, 30 k's from the coast. In the afternoons, the... Sea breeze is pushed, pushes the clouds off the ocean over Nara and and up the escarpment. They roll down over Robertson. Our temperature drops by 10 to 15 degrees in 45 minutes. And that creates this beautiful environment for aging a barrel of whiskey. Let me ask you a, a more, much more uh, uh, nuts and bolts question. Yeah. You... Uh, I won't say fortunate, but it's fortunate. You, it's fortunate you don't have a terrible product on your hand. You've got a great product. You built a great product. You've, mm. you've crafted a great product. Uh, how did you learn to make whiskey? Where, where, does, where, does a, where does a bloke with a range of different business backgrounds say, you know what, I'm going to be the bloke who, who makes the whiskey? There's one thing about the business model of being a whiskey uh, owner or, or a whiskey company. Uh, something to say, I'm going to make sure this is great whiskey. That's, I imagine, a, a long and steep learning curve, or is it not? You're talking to a guy who uh, who left school at 17, right? Um, did apprenticeship. Uh, I'm also the guy that you'd find down at the state library in the in the 90s and the weekends with um, a big fat wad of copy cards. I don't know if you remember the copy cards. Yeah, yeah. And so I'd be in there um, pulling books out of stack on how to run a business. Okay. And photocopying yards of stuff and taking it home and reading it during the week. And that was my Google back in the day. <laughs> and I just studied. Right. Self-studied. Right. I, I um, haven't been to university, haven't been to TAFE, mm. and I have just spent my whole life um, training my brain to do the next thing I'm interested in, and I go down rabbit holes like a like a nerd, mm. Mm. and that's how I learned to do everything. 
And what makes uh, again? This is a chance for you to boast or or, or to uh, make make your make your promotional claim. There are other people who are in the same boat who are hoping to make the best whiskey in the world, who are hoping to make the next great Australian whiskey to do what you're doing. And there's a lot of new entrants in this space. How did you give yourself the confidence, uh, expectation, you know, that that you could make? a great, let alone the best whiskey, a great whiskey. I imagine I could go and read the same books. I would assume my whiskey's not going to be as good as yours because I'm not, I haven't made any, you have. Uh, but but how do you, how do you? I guess it's the entrepreneurial confidence again, but there's one thing to say, I want to make whiskey. There's another thing to say, I think I can do it better than anybody else because I'm going to bring X to the table. What was it for you that gave you the confidence to say, I'm going to be able to make a luxury whiskey that's worthy of the name, the brand, the price? With all due respect to my fellow whiskey makers, <laughs> And, and seriously, um, I have a lot of admiration for my industry. Um, they they are traditionalists generally. Okay. Um, they're using a traditional pot still. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Lark is the is the doyen of Australian whiskey. He um, he showed us that we could go into a fabricator's mm. and have them weld us up a copper pot still. And then if we made some wash, in his case, bought some wash in from the local brewery, put it through the pot still, mm. put it into a barrel, da 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 And that was not my game. Okay. I have uh, designed my stills myself. I visited distilleries around America looking at their different production okay. techniques. Um, the still that I've built is unique in Australia. Uh both my stills are unique. One of them is only one other in the world that I know of. And we set out, I set out to do things differently. Mm. If I wanted to, to, be an out, uh, you know, to be an outlier in the industry, I couldn't follow the industry down its <laughs> yeah. path. Yeah. And the way we've built our distillery is utterly unique. And I kind of thought that the market would follow everybody else for a period of time. And then over time, I would build a cohort of followers and they would be heading off in co- such a different direction to everybody else. When I say everybody, all the other distillers mm-hmm. with product, then that I would have a, a distinctly different product that was more unique. And that's the direction that I'm heading, I'm heading in. Now, we're not talking apples and oranges unique, but we're just talking to use, say, a grape reference, I have different varieties planted and I see that my variety will find a big fan base in the future mm. and will be hard to copy. And and that's one of your barriers of entry. I mean, the other one's obviously time. Yeah. Um, and I'll be so far down that path before somebody turns and follows me. It is the beauty of... Uh choosing to keep some of that whiskey without selling it is you, you're almost built into your model. Now, it needs to be successful, but you build into your model the idea of, I've got the whiskey I didn't sell when others did. And that almost by itself provides you with a, a quantity and a, and a, and a proposition hmm. that others can't match because they simply have chosen to, to follow a different business model. Well, look, our first year's production of 8,000 litres, we're holding the vast majority of that back because we know we're going to need anniversary bottles for the next 100 years <laughs> and it can only come from one one yeah. year's worth of whiskey so once that's gone it's gone now the second year well we've managed to double production every year for the first three or four years um we'll be leaning into that for our um, first releases 
So for the whiskey aficionado, whiskey aficionados, let me spit that out. Listening, Mark, um, what uh, describe? Uh, is it A or the Coburn's whiskey? What, what is? What, what are they getting? Uh, throw throw some throw some words at us that, that our listeners will understand. Um, if I, if I eventually buy a bottle of Coburn's, if I can get my hands on one, uh, what what are they tasting? What what are you, what's the experience of drinking a Coburn's whiskey? Primarily, they're um, single barrel releases, numbered bottles. Um, you know, you're getting something that's um, that's a very limited um, offering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that when you come back each time, there'll be a variation on the flavour, so you can go on a journey with that bottle. It's it, it's not being um, commoditized like like a say a, um, a Johnny Walker. We we specialise in large format barrels, which is a point of difference in the industry. Less so now, but very much so when I started. Mm. Um, large format barrels take a lot, lot longer to age to get the flavour development. Ah, of course, time is crucial. You can't, you can't cheat time. There's, yeah. there's plenty of um, polishing techniques in the whiskey game nowadays that are coming up to kind of imitate a bit of time, but but real time has a has a flavour profile. Mm. Um, using larger format wood or barrels. Makes a more delicate flavour. Um, our flavour is quite big. Australia, the Australian style, based on our climate, is a big flavour. So, lots of vanilla. In our case, lots of Christmas cake, dried fruit, um, caramel. Um, um, I was in France uh, a month ago, and I we have barrel owners all around the world now, which is. I choke up when I think of that. It, to be trusted from the other side of the world is a very mm-hmm. humbling thing as well. And when my barrel owners in France heard that I was uh, coming over to have a look at the export opportunities in France, right. they arranged a few opportunities for me. And one of them was I got to visit the house of Cuvier, um, Michel Cuvier, who was a, a Frenchman that uh, was selling wine into the UK in the 1960s. Right. Saw an opportunity to bring unmatured Scotch spirit into France. He put it into barrels, put those barrels into caves in Burgundy, limestone caves in Burgundy. Right. And aged whiskey in limestone caves, um, specialising in, in sherry barrels. Uh, Cuvier himself passed away 10 years ago. His 22-year employee, um, Jean Anou, hosted me. It's a, it's a trade-only um, place. It's a, it's a no-seller door. Um, and because I'd won awards, I got in the door. Right, nice. And uh, I happened to be there during the World Cup, and <laughs> and he was off to see France play that night, and I'm an all-black supporter by nationality. <laughs> yes. And I was having a very good World Cup at that point. And after walking through these limestone caves and seeing barrels that have been there since the late 70s and 80s, you know, we're talking about whiskey at a level that's just so rarefied. That's incredible, yeah. I'm in uh, Jean and his office. I pull out a, a sample bottle of my whiskey, or two of them, and I've never had my whiskey tasted in such a technical way. Oh, okay. Um, and I was really blown away by the praise that it was given. Um, 
and also how he could see my my product fitting into the French market. Okay. He was very enthusiastic, very, very enthusiastic. And I, I realized then that um, I was a particularly lucky man. My cards had fallen in my favor mm. one step after another. And here I am sitting in one of the greatest whiskey makers, bespoke whiskey makers in the world. Um, he then put me in contact with his Australian distributor um, as a recommendation. He wants to find me a really good home in France to distribute Coburn's. Um, he gets what I'm about as I get what he's about. It's a very, yeah. Very, very cool. Mate, uh, as we get to the end of the podcast, it probably uh, behoves me to ask, when can we get our hands on some Coburn's whiskey? What is, what is the release schedule? What, uh, what, what's the plan from here? What, what's the two, three, five, seven, ten year plan? I know you're a hundred year business plan kind of guy, but uh, when, when do we start to see some available on shelves or, or maybe virtually uh, available online? On the 28th of July next year, uh, first barrels are seven years old. Right. Um, that means our second year's barrels are six years old. The, um, the whiskey in them is, is ready to bottle. We're getting our export market ready. Um, it, it's going to be a very limited thing. You yeah. won't find us on the shelves at Dan Murphy's. You'll probably find us in a specialist whiskey bar in capital cities and a specialist uh, bottle shop in capital cities. Um, if you're lucky, right? because our, our mailing list database will consume we expect the vast majority of our supply. Wow. Okay. Um, this is luxury, not ultra mm-hmm. premium. It's, it's, it's the difference between a Ferrari and a Mercedes. Yeah. Um, we're not making something for everybody. We're taking the best Australian whiskey to the world, and um, that's our plan. How can people find out more about you and about Coburn's Whiskey? Um, uh, Coburns.com.au, C-O-B-U-R-N-S. Um, you'll you'll find me there. Very good. I wish you all the best, mate. I'm looking forward to seeing the first release of Coburn's Whiskey when it comes time for that. But in the meantime, we'll keep in touch. Mark Coburn, thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly. Link Kelly.